My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I am really grateful to be with you guys today. Uh, when I was in high school, we didn't have Yelp or Google reviews or anything like that. So you were basically at the mercy of what people told you about uh, a restaurant or a doctor's office or a dentist, or sometimes you just basically went in blindly. Uh, and I'll never quite forget this one time I went to the dentist, and as soon as I got there, I knew that I was going to be in for a very long day. Um, everything in the entire dentist office, and I mean everything, was like it was from the 60s and 70s. Uh, the furniture was kind of cool. It was a little retro. Uh, but then when I went into the office, I was like, oh, no, this dude's equipment is from the 60s. <laughs> and I sat down to get a procedure, uh, a cavity filled, and this dude's drill didn't even have any water attached to it. So he was drilling into my teeth, and you can just feel this beautiful sensation of burning hot enamel, and the smell was amazingly delicious. Uh, and I've never quite forgotten that story because the tools that he used were so flawed. The tools that he used were so imperfect. For centuries and centuries before I went into that dentist's office, God, our great physician, has been using imperfect and flawed tools to do his work. God has used women and men uh, all through the years who have deep flaws. More particularly, when you think about what Jesus calls uh, the church to be about, Jesus calls you and I, people who make up the church, to be on mission, and we are supremely flawed individuals. Uh, if you're new to church or your first time back in a long time, part of the reason you might have been staying away is because of how deeply flawed the people who call themselves the church really are. You've seen the hypocrisy. You've seen the selfishness. You've seen the self-centeredness. And you thought to yourself, I don't want to be, have anything to do with those people. In a lot of ways, you're right. There is a lot of hypocrisy and flaw in the church. But yet and still, Jesus wants to use me and, me and you to see change in this world. A few weeks ago, we looked at this one scripture in Matthew 5 where you see uh, Jesus calls the church salt and light, that the church, the, the individual members that make up the body of Christ would be um, the preserving agent that God would sprinkle all over the world in places where it would decay otherwise, that God uses the church to be the light, that we would shine the light of Christ in dark areas that need light. All the last couple of weeks, we've been in this Gospel and Race series, and we have seen a lot of darkness. We've seen a lot of history of America and in the church and a lot of things that actually is pretty depressing, and it's left a lot of you, like me, asking the question, what should we do? A couple of weeks ago, we really focused in on who we are. We are salt and light. This is not an option. This is what Jesus has given us as our assignment. Uh, we are the salt and the light of the world. Uh, and the big question is, what should we actually do? Now, that is a fantastic question to ask. Uh, but before we get to what we should do, uh, I first wanted to pause a little bit and, and look at a scripture that shows the nature and the character of what Jesus did and what Jesus was about to help us, for those of us who would want to follow Jesus, to give us a little bit of a framework of how he lived his life and how you and I can step into that. Uh, it comes from Jesus' first recorded sermon in Luke 4. Uh, he walks up to the front of the church. He enrolls his scroll in Isaiah 61, and he reads this passage. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, 
to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what we see Jesus doing here is something that we see happening all throughout Scripture, that God, God of the Bible, identifies with the fatherless, the hopeless, the oppressed, the widower, the, the orphan. All throughout Scripture, you don't see God just tolerating people like that, but God identifying with those people as his primary target. Now, when Jesus uh, reads this scroll from Isaiah, he's basically saying, the reason that I have come are for these people. He's outlaying for us his mission. And if you and I would follow after Jesus, we would have to get along with him in his mission. Now, one of the things that strikes me so much about Made in the Streets, for example, is uh, they don't just walk past kids uh, in the streets who have uh, a tough life and have no, no resources, and they don't just look at them and say, hey, Jesus loves you. Here's a track uh, for you to uh, read all about John 316 um, and have a great day. But they stop and they invest in these kids' lives. And there's something about investing your life in those who need it the most that is as powerful to me. I can't imagine a version of Christianity that is true and faithful to Christ that doesn't notice and it doesn't stop and it is not dedicating itself to the pursuit of justice, of wrongs to be righted. Now, generally, when we talk about justice and we talk about seeing restoration, and certainly when it comes to racial justice or any type of justice in this world, there tends to be two camps of people. The first camp tend to be hyper-spiritual, and hyper-spiritual folks will tell you, stick to the gospel. You don't need to do anything else. Just make sure you just end them books, reading, you know, read through all of the, the books of the Bible, and you don't have to do anything else but just to preach this gospel. And in doing so, a lot of times, they neglect the people that are right in front of their faces, and they claim to follow a Jesus who has come for the oppressed, come for the fatherless, come for those in need, and they themselves sit in their homes and argue and debate about these high theological principles that have no impact on people who are, who are actually suffering. There was a conference going on last year this time, and uh, a bunch of people were arguing about all of these very, very minor doctrines, and then someone commented, but well, yo, people in Flint don't have water. You arguing about whether or not Jonah got swallowed by a whale or a fish, and people don't have water. Who cares? The other camp tend to be hypersocial, and they neglect the spiritual aspect of it, and they think that Jesus' sole purpose was to come to bring a social renewal and social revival, to see people oppressed, and that the entirety of his mission uh, was about social reform. What they miss is Jesus' spiritual concerns, and we see this here in verse 19, where Jesus says um, that he is also here to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, the year of the Lord's favor was this thing, this principle called Jubilee. And Jubilee was this thing that happened once every 50 years where all of the prisoners were released, all of the debts were canceled, and everybody was allowed to go free. Here's what Jesus is saying he came to do. That in him, in his coming, all, the, all of the debts that you and I have racked up in our sin and our sins all throughout the years, past, present, and future, in Christ, those sins are released all of our spiritual oppression has now been uh, uh, conquered by Jesus, the one who conquered death, hell, and the grave. And he who the Son has set free is free indeed. And to be on mission with Jesus is an acknowledgement and realizing that his mission is both. It's not an either or or. It is both social and spiritual. There's a, a parable or rather a, a miracle that you see in all four of the Gospels when Jesus 
um, heal, uh, feeds 5,000 people. And there's this great exchange that Jesus has between him and his disciples. And he had just got finished healing people and preaching the gospel to thousands of people. And then his disciples say, great, send everybody home because we don't, we don't have enough food for all these people. Jesus does not let them off the hook. He says, no, do not send them away. You feed them. Jesus is after both the spiritual and the physical, and particularly as we have talked about the deep, dark past of America and all of the things we've talked about, slavery, Jim Crow, and the present effects of these systems, and we're not talking about bad attitudes, we're talking about systems that have been set in place and keep people in places of oppression, the question is, what should me and you do? First answer is we should do something. Uh, I, I don't know everything, but I do know that to be a follower of Jesus, the one who served, uh, means that you and I would also be oriented towards service, oriented towards justice, giving our lives for something more than just theories and doctrines uh, and things to do. So where do you start? Um, now, I've, I've borrowed uh, these, these points very, very graciously and liberally from Brian Stevenson. Uh, he's a brilliant man. Anything that you can uh, read about him, of any of his works, um, that he's going to be on Oprah next week, so you know he's official. Um, he, uh, he's a brilliant man, and uh, one of the first things that you and I need to realize uh, in approaching how do you and I become people of justice, how do you and I actually engage in something meaningfully that will one day eventually seek change happen, both in small and big ways, uh, the first thing is you and I need to determine where we will engage. You're going, you are going to need to determine specifically where you will engage. Uh, one of the most helpful concepts in Scripture is that it refers to you and I as the body of Christ. Now, I got D's in biology, but I do know this about the body. Every member of the body, every part of the body has a very specific function. You need kidneys to kidney. You need <laughs> lungs to breathe. That's what they do. <laughs> it would be a huge mistake to assign to the entire body one specific thing to do. It would be, a, a, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 12, if the whole body were eyes, then what about hearing? Eyes are really important. I'm very grateful to have my vision, but if my entire body was an eye, I would not last very long. The body needs the entirety of the organs and intestines and all of these different things moving together, acting in concert with each other in order to see health and wellness. And in order for the body of Christ to, to actually contribute meaningfully and to be healthy, we need to all operate in very specific but different ways uh, to see God's mission move forward. And I don't want you making the same mistake that I made, which is assigning the thing that you are passionate about to be the thing that everybody needs to be passionate about. What God is burdening you with is fantastic, and I want you to do that, but it might not be how everybody is supposed to operate. Um, and this is a mistake that I made a couple years ago, and uh, just for the sake of confession, uh, a few years ago when I uh, was reading this New York Times article, it was called, uh, As District 3 Schools Are Thriving, Harlem Schools Have Been Left to Fail. And the article named a number of schools, including the one that we're sitting in right now, as a school that has been failing. And I thought about all of the kids who are on that school-to-prison pipeline. And I sat there reading an article with tears in my eyes, and I, I just knew that this was something that we have to do something about. 
Now, that's a beautiful thing. And me and my wife's plan is that we will send Jameson here next year. Uh, and we, I want to join the PTA. And I would, inc- I would be so thrilled if other families would stay in Harlem, invest themselves here for the long term, send their kids to this school, join the PTA, and be involved in the long-term process of seeing disadvantaged people and giving them opportunities and advantages and using all of our resources for the growth and the betterment of everyone, particularly those who are on the margins. But my mistake was that I thought what, my, what was my burden should be everybody's burden. And as important as education is and uh, inequality in education is because of all of the, the negative effects that it has on kids uh, who are undereducated, uh, certainly in elementary school and what happens to them later in life, man, that's just not the entirety of the mission. And I'd be naive to think that my burden is what everybody's burden should be. And I don't want you making that same mistake, thinking that the thing that you are passionate about and the thing that gets you angry and the thing that gets you uh, motivated is a thing that everybody should be motivated. You and I are members of one body, and we play a very specific part. But if everyone was focused on education, then what about the penal system? If everybody was focused on the penal system, then what about the foster care system? And the list can go on and on and on and on uh, to people who are experiencing injustices and what you and I are doing to seek their betterment. Uh, It cannot just be one single way of going about it, which is why, as a church, we are not going to start an initiative for everybody to do. We're not going to start one program for everybody to sign up, but rather we are calling the body to be the body. We are calling the body to identify where you can engage in order to seek meaningful justice and reform happen in our society. So how do you, how do you determine what your place is? Now, it's unlikely that you'll be effective in 20 different areas, but the best way for you to engage and the best way for you to determine what your place is in this, uh, in this process is to look at your gifts, your burdens, and your interactions. Your gifts, your burdens, and your interactions. The first ones, what are your gifts? What are the things that God has gifted you with that could bless someone else? What are the things that God has given you, uh, be it a skill or financial? What are the things that God has given you, and what are the opportunities that you see right in front of your face that your gifts could meet? We have a friend here who is very gifted with numbers and all these different things, and she's very gifted with all of this, but she's not necessarily passionate about taxes. But on Saturdays, on some Saturdays, she gives her time and her energy to do taxes for people who are less fortunate. So that these people are not further disadvantaged uh, by the system, she makes sure that people have their taxes done and done correctly for free. Now, she doesn't have a burden for taxes. This is not something that she has given her life for. This is a gift that she has and a need that needs to be met. And one of the best ways for you to identify where it is that God could be calling you to move. And again, as a, as a members of a body, there is no more room for uh, appendixes. We don't need parts of the body that don't do anything. That's one thing I do know, remember from biology. So when you become aware of a need in an area that you're gifted at, that's a good time for you to stop and to pray and say, Lord, is this an area that you were calling me to get involved in? The second one are your burdens. Uh, We talked about burdens a few weeks ago in the life of Moses and what God allowed Moses to experience as burdens uh, before God called Moses into action. Moses had seen one of his fellow Israelites being harmed, and Moses was so angry and what he saw. And God used that 
before he called Moses into service. And here's what we said about that. Before God ever appeared to Moses in a burning bush, God first lit Moses on fire. One of the ways that God operates in our lives is that God frustrates you. He disrupts your peace about something in such a profound way that you are burdened by it. And don't shrug that off as an inconvenience, but rather view that as a way that God could be speaking to you in order to spark you towards moving towards justice, towards moving towards action, towards doing something. And if there's something that you are bothered by and deeply concerned at, and you see that there could be a need that you can fill, pray that, God, this could be an area that you're calling me to get involved in. And maybe that's the area. The third one, uh, we have gifts, we have burdens. And the third one is, is really big. These are your interactions. Who are the people that are right in front of you uh, right now? What are the individual relationships that you have right now? And where do you see needs in those interactions? Uh, one of my friends here is also one of my heroes, Aswan. He was just doing the announcements. Uh, when I first met Aswan, he uh, had taken in someone who had been living in foster care his whole life. And um, he, after foster care, he was in prison for a little bit. And after he got out of prison, he was um, riding the train. Uh, <clears throat> he was riding the train every day because he didn't have a place to stay. Aswan had a small kid at home and two daughters. And uh, even he had three kids in a two-bedroom apartment, and he brought him in to, to live with them. And he didn't bring him in just as a charity case. He brought him in as family. Now, Aswan was not burdened and passionate about the penal system and the foster care system, but there was an interaction that he had with someone that led him towards doing something to see someone blessed and to see someone's life uh, turn around. And now that guy is doing fantastic. What are the interactions that you already have in your life that could be a sign that this is where God is calling you to get involved? Now, one of the things that makes my heart jump for joy is when I see some of my white brothers and sisters engaging your family members and friends, your present-day people that you're interacting with, with a different narrative on how they should view race, with a different narrative on how they should view um, the police shootings or any of these different things, because here's what I know to be true. A lot of the people that you know who are far from the truth, they are close to you. And here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to go on social media and talk about how woke you are. I don't want you bad-mouthing bad your family members and how ignorant they are. I don't want you bragging that you've hidden all your racist uncles and aunts on Facebook. I want you to unhide them. Unhide them, and next time you go home, I want you to take them out for dinner. And I want you to approach them in a way that they can hear and tolerate. One of the things that I love most about Jesus is the way that Jesus comes to people is not just with a machine gun of truth, but he comes in grace and truth. Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, there are many things that I need to tell you, but you can't bear to hear all of them right now. And he gives them just enough truth for them uh, and so that they can receive uh, the truth that he is giving. Here's what I want you to do. Some of the ways that are most helpful for us as a, as a body and as a, as a country to progress are when people are not necessarily standing on their high horse and looking down on people who aren't as enlightened as they are, but they are meaningfully investing in their lives in such a way that they are giving them just enough truth that they can handle. Maybe the work that God has for you is not some big explosive thing for you to do, but it's simply for you to take time to investigate what's going on in your family members' lives and invest in them and slowly and gently and patiently walk with them along the, word, along the road to show them a better way. 
That might just be the interaction and how God is calling to use you. Now, the second thing um, that I want you to know about uh, once you've identified uh, the area that God wants you to move is when you feel like there might be a direction that God is calling you to move in, I don't want you to pray for clarity. Oftentimes, this is what we do. We say, Lord, if this is your will for me, send an angel to tickle my feet at nighttime. (laughs) And if he tickles the bottom of my feet, then I will know that this is your will for me, Lord. And I'll do whatever you say, Lord, whatever, I'll do it. And when God doesn't move in the very specific and narrow way that we have asked him to move, we are paralyzed by indecision. Here's what I want you to do. If there could be an area based on your gifts, your burdens, or your interactions that you feel like God is calling you to move in, in the direction of justice, I want you to start moving in that direction. And along the way, pray for God's uh, uh, spirit to, to correct you and to turn you around if this is not the direction that you're supposed to be walking in. Uh, there's a fantastic quote by Frederick Douglass where he says, I prayed for 20 years but received no answer until I prayed with my legs. Some of us need to do a whole lot more praying with our legs and just start moving in the direction that we feel God is calling us to move in. Now, there will be times for some of you where you start moving in a direction and you realize after a couple steps in or after however long that this is not the direction you're supposed to be going in and that's going to happen and then stop. That's fine. But it is much, 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 much easier to direct someone that's in motion than to start someone up who's sitting there uh, paralyzed by indecision. We want to be the type of people that are already um, in motion so that God can redirect us from time to time, but that we don't have to always be restarted and, and dragged to, to be somewhere. So once you've determined an area, an area that you can move in that's, that's seeking justice and seeking restoration in people's lives, um, uh, the second thing that we need to do is uh, we have to get close to the problems that we care about. We have to get close to the problems that we care about. Uh, I love social media. I spend way too much time on, on social media, and social media does give us a lot of good things, but social media also does something really, really harmful, particularly in the area of justice. Social media will give you the appearance of activity, while in reality, you are completely disengaged. Social media will allow you to have all of this wonderful appearance and likes and retweets and all of this outrage that you appear as the, the foremost expert on a subject while simultaneously you are as engaged in that area as my Rottweiler. Gustavo Gutierrez is a Peruvian theologian, and he says it like this, you say you care about the poor, then tell me, what are their names? You say you care about the poor, you say you care about this group of people, then tell me, what are their names? Who are, this, who are these mystical or mythical people that you are claiming to care so much about. What happens a lot of times when people invest too much time in social media is that they speak about issues that they are miles away from. They have never actually put their feet in the direction of the people that they say they care about. And I would hate for you to to be keyboard killers, uh, armchair activists that talk a whole lot about a certain area of injustice, and we ourselves are not close to it. Jesus does not save us from a distance. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells us that when, uh, G- uh, when Jesus came, he came and he got close to us. In John 1, we see it says uh, Jesus came to his own, uh, his own people, and, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt and lived among us. We observed his glory, the glory as a one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus came to save us, he did not save us from a distance. It was not a word that God spoke from the great beyond. It was a Jesus that came and lived among us. In 1 John, the authors talk about this Jesus that came. We've touched him with our own hands. He was close enough to be touched. The second step, which is so vital for you and me, after we have determined an area, you and I need to get close to that. We need to hear the stories. We need to be close enough to be touched. We need to know exactly what people we are talking about that are affected by the things that we are so enraged about, and that these are not distant topics that we talk about, but that these are people, these are stories that we are now hearing and living in. One of the most helpful things for anybody in this church will be, if you feel like uh, partnering with Maiden in the Streets would be a good thing for you, would be to go. Go and see these kids that they're talking about. Now, it's great to hear the stories from the speakers on stage, but I guarantee you, if you went, it would do something else to you. It would change the way you approach it altogether. It would clarify some things for you. And in order for you and I in this church and the churches around the world and the country to be instruments, God's instruments of justice, you and I need to get close to what we're talking about. Uh, my wife and I most recently, uh, a couple of days ago, got sick from my son, Jameson, uh, he gave us one of these wonderful rotavirus, the stomach bug. Anybody ever had one of those? They're fantastic. It's my summer workout plan. Basically, just get a couple of those. I'll be summer body ready in just a couple of those interactions. Um, in order to care for Jameson, uh, in order to love him, particularly when he was sick, we had to get close. And in getting close, we got sick as well. I've often wondered about the cross and why God needed to send Jesus to the cross, and it was because of this. In order for Jesus to come close to his people, it would be impossible for him to come into contact with sick and hurting people and him himself not have to bear that sickness. Jesus got close enough to us in order to save us, and you and I would be his followers, and following in the life of Jesus, we're going to have to get closer to things that we claim bother us and the things that we uh, have identified as injustices. The third thing um, that we need to do is to change the narrative. There are very uh, harmful narratives in America that perpetuate injustices in this country. Um, There's a couple that Brian Stevenson talks about in some of his works. Uh, He talks about in American psychology, there's the idea that some children are not children but they are, in fact, super predators. And that concept was given to us by a nice, friendly, liberal Democrat, uh, in which paved the way for kids to be tried as adults. This is why, in some ways, a lot of young black kids are seen as adults when they are, in fact, children. Why the police thought Tamir Rice was a grown man when he was only 12. And why we treat other people like Dylan Roof, who was 21, like a kid. There are narratives that are extremely harmful for people, and in order for us to see change happen, we need to be engaged in areas of work, but we also need to be very conscious about the narratives that are going on and to speak out against these very harmful narratives that we see in place. Do not remain silent, but in order for us to see change, we have to change the narrative. Fourth one is probably one of the most difficult, which is we have to remain hopeful. 
here's what I know about uh, justice work. Um, there will come moments where you will be convinced that everything that you have just done doesn't amount to anything. That you have been working on something and it just feels like the progress is so slow that you'd want to just give up and say it's not doing anything at all. Brian Stevenson in one of his books talks about a prisoner that he was working with, a guy named Roy Hinton. And Roy had spent 30 years on death row uh, for a crime that he did not commit. And Brian Stevenson worked on his case for 15 years until he was finally exonerated. 15 years. Imagine if he would have quit after five years and just said, hey, man, I worked on this guy's case for five years and nothing happened, so I'll just give up. What about a decade? I mean, a decade is long enough for most of us, I think, listen, dude, you gave it a good run. You gave it a good go. Just let it go. Nothing is going to change. But it took 15 years for him to see this man exonerated for the crime that he did not commit, and he was later released. I say all I have to say this. The systemic things that have been baked into American culture um, are not new concepts. These have been established in America from the very first day, the first ship arrived here. The treatment of indigenous and, uh, and, uh, and Asian and African people goes back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and it will not unravel itself tomorrow. It will not unravel itself in a day or a week or a month. And in order for us to see change happen, we need to remain hopeful that in the long term of us committing ourselves to a certain direction, we will see change. As the author puts it in Galatians 6, 9, one of my favorite scriptures, he says, let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. You and I will reap a harvest of justice, of equality, of love, flourishing for people if we do not give up. In order for us to be committed uh, towards the work of justice, in order for us to be instruments that God can use, we need to remain hopeful. Now, here's something that I've been wrestling with personally, and uh, we talked about this a little bit in my community group this past week. I feel so often in life, I dwell, I spend most of my thinking on Jesus on the cross, and not nearly as much time thinking about the resurrected, risen Jesus. It's easier for me to picture Jesus as my sacrifice, as the one who makes me and God good, and not the one who has risen in all power and all authority and tells us, in this world, you will have trials and tribulations, but be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. The risen Jesus will allow us to remain hopeful that there will be good Fridays in our life when it looks dark. There will be holy Saturdays where there is silence in our lives and we can't see the activity of God, but that does not mean that Resurrection Sunday is coming. And if you and I serve a risen Jesus, then that means all power and authority is in his hands. And as confusing as it may seem, as dark as the days may seem, we can remain hopeful that the risen Jesus has all power and all things in his hand, and we can continue to follow him uh, to a very certain outcome, even as dark as it may look in the very present. Now, the last thing that we need to do is sometimes we have to do uncomfortable things. One of the great things about America and New York City is the amount of comfort that you, are, you and I are allowed to exist in. Uh, I was on Friday talking to a friend, and he showed me that Shake Shack now delivers on Seamless. I'm like, praise the Lord. I didn't know that was a thing, but it is. And I can order one of my favorite burgers to my crib with just a few clicks. I got my Apple Pay saved in the, the, the app, and it's terribly easy to do most things. And I've talked at length about my addiction to all things Amazon, and I can have most things that I want. Anything that I think of, I can have it basically in a day, as a lot of times just in a couple of hours. 
what that has done to us, I think, is subconsciously told us that life is supposed to be easy and convenient. That to a certain degree, it gives us a level of entitlement. That when we are now called to do uncomfortable things, it just feels off. Because so much of life caters to us that we don't, we're not uh, able to truly uh, understand the depths to which God calls his people to engage in uncomfortable things to see his will happen. I defy any one of you to show me a story in scripture where God has used someone meaningfully that he did not severely disrupt their lives and their comfort. Pick one, where God did not completely uproot someone from everything that was comfortable in their lives and put them somewhere else in order for them to live on mission for him. And here's what we're asking you guys to do. We're asking you to identify an area for you to engage. We're asking you to get close. Take a couple steps in that direction. We're not saying go 100 miles now in that direction tomorrow. We're saying identify what it is and start making actual physical steps towards it. And we're asking you to continue to change the narrative in our spaces and remain hopeful. Now, one of my uh, favorite things about Renaissance are the people that make up this church and this body um, here at Renaissance. And one of these people is uh, Cedra Sebastian. She's one of my uh, community group leaders here at Renaissance. And she is the opposite of an armchair activist or a keyboard killer. Uh, Cedra has been engaged and involved in justice work for, uh, for decades, um, and which is crazy because she's only 19 years old. Um, <laughs> but she, uh, she is uh, someone that I look up to when it comes to thinking about how I could orient my life around justice and seeking good things to happen. So please give it up for my homegirl, Cedra. <laughs> So, Cedra, what advice would you give to someone who is just starting out and they've heard this message and, they've, and they're thinking to themselves, you know what, I'm not really engaged like I should be. What advice would you give them? Good morning. I um, want to give a shout out to my CG members who are here this service and my mama who came all the way from Brooklyn. Um, and so, first, I would just... Um, say that it's important for everyone to do something because I believe that we're in a place, particularly in this country, where it's not okay for people to keep saying, well, I'm a good person and my family is made up of good people, so that's enough. It's not enough. We're at a point in this country's history, in this present moment, where everybody who's a good person needs to show that they're a good person by doing good things and doing it out loud, right? And so that might mean, to the point that you were making, connected with folks who are closest to you, checking your family and friends when they say and do things that you know are rooted in their implicit biases or overt racism or overt oppression and prejudice against people that they don't know that maybe they've been um, hardwired to believe that is true, but it's not true. So that's something that we can do in close proximity. Um, and I wouldn't say that the other end of it is going into the streets every time that there's something that happens, but to think about what you can do in your positions of power. So maybe you um, are the hiring person at your job. What can you do that would orient your industry, your corporation, your agency in the direction of justice by using your position in hiring to really create a diverse team in your unit? 
in your agency. Um, so thinking about the things that you already have and how you can use those things to orient yourself and your friends and family toward justice. Maybe you're an artist. How can you use your artistry to do that? Maybe you're into technology and innovation. How can you use those skills to do that? I think folks zero no hire need to decide to do something and then do things that are in proximity to you as far as your relationships with friends and family, but also places of position where you might be a gatekeeper and can create some impact. That's really good. Uh, so Cedra, I forgot to mention this earlier. She works with uh, Brotherhood Sister Soul. Uh, she works with immigrant communities and young girls of color and is always just always engaged in so much stuff. Uh, Cedra, how do you stay encouraged? Yeah, so <laughs> it's tough. I'm, you know, I'm going to make it plain. I'm going to keep it real. It's tough. And there are times when... Um, where I struggle to feel hopeful, um, where I struggle to laugh, and the thing that keeps me grounded is um, being in prayer and meditation. Um, I have a, a tight crew of folks who love me and care for me, um, my family, um, and that's chosen family and blood-related um, that hold me down and really pouring into them and allowing them to pour into me for support. Um, and I'm a person who loves history, so going back and thinking of times where small groups of people have come together to move forward and to change systems and to change policies um, and lean on that, but also look to what people are doing now. Like, the brightest shining thing for me is working with young people because we have so many young people who, like, get it and who are moving things and shaking things up in this country. And oftentimes it's been young people with new perspectives and different ideas who are doing that um, and getting a lot of information and inspiration from people who've been doing the work um, longer than I have. Um, but it can definitely be a struggle, um, you know, depending on what's happening with me personally, but also what I might be experiencing or seeing in my community. Um, I live in Brooklyn, um, and a few days ago... Um, just 10 minutes away from where I live, someone was shot and killed um, by the police. It's become a complicated um, story, but one thing that I know rings true is that if he were not a man of color, if he was not a black man, I'm positive that the police would have responded into de-escalating the situation in a very different way. And again, we have so many present day and past things to point to that as being true. Um, so what do you do when that happens? How do you hold on to hope? And for me, is is being in, in prayer and tapping into people who I know um, have my back and I have their back too. That's really good. Um, are there any practices that you engage in regularly just to keep you afloat? Uh, things that you do just to say, um, man, you know, in order for me to be involved in this in the long run, I just need to do these things um, uh, in order to be effective for the long term. I know when to take a break. It's a, it's a very <laughs> good skill to learn, and some of that is you learn from trial and error, and sometimes it's your friend telling you have a seat, sit down, <laughs> relax, right? And it, it's not always going to a spa, but sometimes it's, you know, blasting Stevie on 10. Um, Stevie Wonder, that is. For that, that is the only Stevie in my life. Um, <laughs> so sometimes it's that. Um, going to hear really good music, eating really good food, spending time with my niece and nephew. They're the cutest, best, brightest kids in the world. Don't fight me on it. Um, and so, like, again, just kind of really sitting, enjoy reading, traveling, 
um, going to different places, running. Um, yeah, and just really, I think for me, the most important thing is just checking in with myself and figuring out where I'm at and taking the pauses when I need to, but not stopping. So you don't have to be miserable all the time. I refuse to be miserable. Joy is resistance. Joy is resistance. That's fantastic. Uh, so CJ, anything else that you would tell Renaissance uh, in, uh, how for people who are just starting out and wanting to see justice in their lives or uh, people who have been going on a little bit more, uh, any last words that you would give of encouragement? Yeah, I, I want to say something about equality and equity, right? And they're two different things. If there was a bagel here on the table and Jordan and I shared it, that would be equal, right? But if Jordan has a, a fridge full of food and I haven't eaten in two days, should we divide that bagel in half? And that's the difference between equity and equality, right? Because equality would say cut it in half because there's two people, right? One divided by two is half and half. But equity is thinking about the conditions of those people. And I think that's some place that we fail sometimes. We want things to be equal, but we fail to, to thoughtfully, mindfully, from a, a, a faith place, a spiritual place, but also from a social justice space, think about the conditions, because that's actually what makes people uncomfortable. Not doing the math, but having to point to yourself and say, what conditions have I been given because of my birthright in this country? What conditions have I been given because of how the world sees me, specifically how the U.S. defines me, that allows for me to have more in my fridge than somebody else? to generationally have more in my fridge than somebody else. And so I think that would be a really great start for us to check our language and our understanding of equality versus equity and to, to strive towards equity. Wow. That is a word. Um, I'm going to pray for Cedra and for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for, man, just how you... Uh, have gifted this, this church body with so many amazing people, including Cedra, to speak to us, to, to help us to see th things through a different lens. And we're so grateful for her and her life and her, her action. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we would get involved and we would move in the direction towards justice and we would orient our, ourselves towards justice. We ask this in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.